0: Brittany Rigby here, Mumbrella's Deputy Managing Editor. This episode was recorded yesterday, Wednesday the 17th of February, before we woke up to this morning's news that Facebook has followed through on its threat to remove news from its platform. Last night, the news media bargaining code was passed through the House of Representatives. And just before 6am this morning, Facebook confirmed that, for Australian users, its news feed will no longer contain news. Australian media outlets will also not be able to post to Facebook. The changes took effect immediately, but we've also seen non-news pages affected, including government pages. Facebook has said it defined news quite broadly, but will work to reinstate any pages that shouldn't have been locked. Understandably, media companies aren't happy. Nine said the behavior is unreasonable, and The Guardian drew attention to the misinformation that will now go unchecked. Smaller publishers are affected arguably even more severely. For Junkie, for example, 75% of its traffic comes from Facebook and Google. The government also isn't happy about the development. In a recent press conference, Treasurer Josh Frydenberg said, Facebook was wrong. Facebook's actions were unnecessary. They were heavy-handed. He said the company did not warn the government that this change was coming. Of course, all of this has happened in the same week the government promised to amend the code to address some of the tech company's concerns. And Google has entered into a flurry of commercial agreements with the same news outlets now kicked off Facebook. News Corp, Seven, and Junkie have all announced deals. Nine reportedly has one too, and The Guardian is in negotiations. Facebook also said in its announcement that it's different to Google because publishers voluntarily upload content to Facebook but don't voluntarily provide their content to Google. This is untrue. Publishers can choose not to appear in Google's search and news tabs. While Facebook works to undo the impacts to pages captured by a loose definition of news, we'll have to wait and see whether the government works quickly and skillfully to convince Facebook to undo this decision entirely. Sportsbet is already taking bets on the matter, with $1.90 odds for news to return by the 1st of April, and $1.85 to return later than that, or never. In the meantime, this isn't a win for anyone. It's not a win for Facebook, where misinformation will now live unmitigated by verified and trusted news. It's not a win for advertisers for that same reason, although media buyers I spoke to said it won't have much effect. It's not a win for news outlets, who have now lost traffic and any bargaining power they thought they had, although Nine has said Facebook will still be bound by the code since the company has already benefited from news content. And it's not a win for Australian readers and users. Now, for the rest of this week's episode. You're listening to, to The Mumbrella, the Cast. Mumbrella, the Cast. Mumbrella, the Mumbrella Cast. Cast.
1: Welcome to The Mumbrella Cast. I'm Olivia Crummel, Managing Editor, News and Analysis. Joining us to break down the week in media and marketing is Pearman Media Director of Strategy and Research and Industry Stalwart, Deeb Allen. Hi, Steve. Hi there, Olivia. And Deputy Managing Editor at Mumbrella, Brittany Rigby. Hello. In the news this week, we will be covering Google's rush to secure new showcase deals with Australian media outlets and the latest changes to the Media Bargaining Code, Seven West Media's mid-financial year results, and the rise of native advertising giants Outbrain and Taboola. Well... Why don't I quickly begin with an introduction to Steve for those in the industry who do not already know. Uh, Steve has been a media analyst, strategist and commentator on the Australian media landscape for several decades. He is probably best known for his media strategy behind Toyota's Oh, What a Feeling campaign in Australia and has also been a judge at the Cannes Media Lions. Steve, welcome to the UmbrellaCast cast today. Thank you very much for joining us.
2: Absolute pleasure. Thanks, Olivia.
1: I, I thought I might start off with a more general question for you, given your years of experience and knowledge of the industry. And I know this is an overused term these days, but how unprecedented is the current media landscape in Australia, given the impacts of technology, COVID-19, regulation, new negotiations in the industry as what we're seeing at the moment? How, how significant is this point in time?
2: Not overused in this context because in 50 years of tracking revenue in the advertising industry, we've only had half a dozen years of negative situation and we've never had a double digit negative of advertising revenue, which we had, of course, in 2020. So all the facts point to the fact that it is completely unprecedented. Uh, we've only once ever before in 50 years gone close to a double-digit decline, but it was half of the decline that we experienced in 2020.
1: The recent lockdown in Melbourne, I just wanted to get your thoughts on that in terms of how significant these sudden shock lockdowns are on the industry and in particular for people with, you know, marketing executions and media plans about to kick off.
2: Um, Look, they're, they're very difficult to, to, to deal with. And the worst factor is that um, now that there has been three in Victoria, it's made advertisers um, increasingly nervous about plans for national rollouts of campaigns and let alone plans of activity just in Victoria or Melbourne. Um, you know, this, the sudden rapid um, changes by government policy into lockdowns or border closures is really making most marketers quite apprehensive and therefore uh, an unwillingness to commit into long-term plans because they don't know what's going to happen. They don't know what the next outbreak is going to be and where it's going to happen. So we're, we're, it, it's really uh, putting off the, the recovery that should be occurring now because many of the... Um, Market conditions, like if you look at the ABS statistics on retail sales, most things are trending in the right direction, even if Victoria is a bit behind the rest. But, but this is putting a spanner in the works. And the, the more this happens, and let's hope forever it doesn't happen again, but the more this ha- happens, the more nervous uh, marketers become and the less bullish they become. So the less rapid the return to a normal market can occur.
1: And just on that, in terms of obviously the states have done very different approaches to various lockdowns and implementations of restrictions, is from a logistics point of view, how difficult is it then for brands, particularly national brands, when it comes to their marketing executions when each state does seem to be on a different page?
2: Well, um, certainly our experience with our client list, which is only a a microcosm of the overall market, but um, quite a spread in categories. Um, it's just making them more cautious. They're not yet uh, implementing a state-by-state campaign attack, but where we have had bookings and we've suddenly come up against lockdown in a particular state um, or, you know, distribution issues in a particular state because of, because of uh, border lockdowns, they've, they've, they and we have adapted very quickly to, to, and the media have been enormously cooperative in this regard, That. You know, a week out or two weeks out, we've been able to change the plans that we had already booked in order to meet the new conditions. So the media are doing their part. But, but as I said a minute ago, it's, it's more the fact that we have had in Victoria in particular three lockdowns that's making clients increasingly hesitant in, um, and, and far less bullish in, in what they might do to the, in the future.
1: Is there, a, I guess, a minimum amount of notice period that would be feasible for, you know, brands and, and their agencies and the media outlets as well to adjust to?
2: Well, we kind of take our cue from what's happening um, in uh, major live sports. Uh, major live sports and, you know, two of the three networks have been affected by this um, and have had to deal with it. and. Certainly they've tried to get, you know, about a four-week window um, in order to organise themselves, you know. Uh, is this going ahead on this date? And if it isn't, we need about four weeks' notice, A, to move the event if it's, if it's going to continue, like the Australian Open at the moment, um, so that we can get all our advertisers uh, uh, aware and, and, and find out if they want to move with the event, which, of course, 99% of the cases it occurs, but then the the television networks um, have to fill the void that they'd already felt was programmed, and that's another logistic issue, and, you know, the the knock-on effect of that is that uh, the television industry had a, a negative January where you would have easily forecast probably a positive and the real reason was just because the Australian Open was moved out of January, going into February, and into the middle of February, as as we speak, it's it's currently on air. So, the the four weeks is the best possible opportunity. And of course, the sporting codes themselves, you know, the the the, the management of the the teams need um, to work out whether they're doing hubs. They need to work out. You know where the hubs are going to be they need to organize all the logistics of accommodation and you know all the protocols they've got to have in order for live sport to occur so there's a myriad of things that um uh, the sporting codes and the, the media have to look at particularly the, the telecasters
1: and is it possible for those advertisers that were looking to piggyback on those sporting events to simply shift their campaigns along with those sporting events? Are are there any logistics issues in that? Or have you seen any brands that had already other activations or other things in play that meant that the timings now didn't really work?
2: Well, it's more the logistics of it. You know, if if somebody's um, planned on having a a, a mid-January Australian Open commencement, uh, mid to late-January commencement, and they've shipped stock Around because they're the, the kind of goods that move quite quickly uh, and some of the advertisers in these are uh, fast-moving consumer goods. Um, it's not so much of an issue if you're a, a motor vehicle brand like Kia, uh, the, sponsor of the Australian, one of the sponsors of the Australian Open, but for others, um, you've shipped extra stock in. You might have done deals with retailers for, you know, and dollar ends and things like that in store. Um, extra shelving and what have you, I'm, we don't have clients that have done that, um, you know, uh, in the last six months. Um, so we're unaware of how cooperative the retailers have been. But one imagines that uh, retailers would be fairly sympathetic, even, even the two major supermarkets would be fairly sympathetic for if this was an Australian open um, uh, kind of event, that the products were phrased around and, and stocked around, I think they'd be pretty cooperative in moving whatever they're going to do in store.
1: Well, I might move on now to our next topic. It's one that's been in the headlines lots in the past few months. After months of consultation, Senate hearings, public pleas for support and argy on Monday we learned that Seven West Media has signed a deal with Google for its news showcase. And we've learnt that it seems Nine is also on the way to signing a deal. Um, Steve and Brett, I'll get you both to input here. Did Seven jump the gun too early on this? Is, is there any indication from the market that they may have been too quick to sign up?
2: Well, um, probably Seven West Media have got an easier decision to make. They're a major uh, newspaper publisher and digital publisher in one state. Um, but they've got other major media assets that also cover news, their television network, um, not the least of it. Um, so it was a simpler dis- decision for them. Um, and, look, the way that James Warburton um, seems to be running uh, the Seven Network is is kind of a first-mover situation. He wants to get things done and done quickly. He doesn't want to procrastinate. He wants to get on the front foot. Um, I think they wanted to get into it quickly to understand exactly how it would operate and whether, whether they got the benefits they perceived they were going to get, not just the dollar benefits, but the traffic benefits. Um, and, you know, what was the point of holding back? Um, um, I think that kind of independence of mind is what is particularly characteristic of the Stokes family and their major shareholding in, in Seven West media. Um, you know, they do think uh, uh, more about what's right for them and their sh- shareholders and, and move on that rather than being in concert with the industry. I don't think they ever intended to uh, make this a controversial move or to bloody uh, competitors' noses. They just moved on this. They they obviously were having more open conversations with Google and maybe maybe... It was just more open communication and a, a better understanding of what both parties wanted, and they came to a, a quick resolution.
1: And, Britt, you've been covering this quite closely as well. What are you hearing from the market in terms of the 7 deal, the now rumoured 9 deal, and potentially a News Corp deal?
0: Yeah, well, it's interesting. As we've been chatting and recording here, junkies also just announced that they've entered into a deal with Google for the Showcase product. Look, I don't think that Seven going first is too surprising. I think that it's probably beneficial for them to set the price with Google without the other deals set in stone already. I mean, there's been a few figures being tossed around, both in terms of what the seven deal is worth, in terms of what the nine deal could be worth. As Steve mentioned, you know, Seven in terms of its publishing play is a is a smaller beast than Nine's publishing arm than News Corp's publishing arm. And so if Seven were to come in second or third and be up against figures that are probably a lot higher than what it's going to get for, you know, the links and, and the news benefit that it provides to Google, I think that it makes sense for it to kind of set the bar in terms of what it wanted. James Dorbitton obviously wouldn't be drawn on how much That is exactly, but he's been pretty clear that they're happy with it. I mean, it would be surprising if he said otherwise. But I think that seven doing so has really put pressure on the others to prove that they're also willing to cooperate, that, you know, the government's plan, if this was part of it, is working and that, you know, everyone can play nice after what has felt like a very, very long time of negotiations being kind of at the left and right end of the spectrum and nobody kind of wanting to come together to meet in the middle.
1: So it looks like it might be a a good outcome for Google, the government and all of the media outlets by what we're seeing at the moment.
2: Well, compared to where the market was, uh, um, you know, there was a huge divide after all at one point um, in Senate inquiry. um, You know, the suggestion was made that Google would withdraw from the market. Um, they made that statement. So we've come a long way in a couple of weeks and it would seem that um, whether the government had the right strategy or not, uh, they've got people uh, into it by coercion or by persuasion or by being open, whatever the mechanism is or was, they've got people to come to agreements.
0: I think that the government will chalk it up as a win, but I don't think that's necessarily because the government has been super strategic through this whole period. I think the outlets realize probably that Google would go ahead with that threat to pull search from the market that Steve referred to if it had to, and that that would mean nobody wins. They don't get the traffic. They don't get the links. Google doesn't get Australia as as a market as small as it may be in comparison with other big markets, but I think that that threat, as severe and perhaps overreactionary as many thought that it was, maybe forced all of the parties to kind of have more serious chats and to think really seriously about what the worst case scenario would look like, and therefore what you know a decent outcome might look like.
2: These are really well played out uh, negotiation tactics. We've just seen them. A little more transparent in the market than we might normally see. This is quite normal in major business.
1: Up next, we'll take a look at how Seven performed in their first half year of financial results. Seven West Media reported on Monday a net profit of $116.4 million for the half year ending 26 December and revealed it had slashed its significant debt pile by 42% to $329 million. The group's revenue was down, though, 9.9% to $644.2 million for the six month period, driven by lower TV revenue share and the ongoing effects of the COVID 19 pandemic. Steve, Britt, are Seven on the right track?
2: Um, I think so. Uh, you know, um, you, you've probably interviewed James Warburton a bit and you know he's, he's a person that pretty much likes things in black and white and he's been quite open about the goals that he set, but, but getting the debt down, getting um, overheads out. You know, when, when he came into Seven, he really got on the front foot quickly and he's executing on all the things he said on day one. And, and and he seems to be ahead of what he originally said to the market.
1: Brett, you covered the results on Monday and the Olympics has come up several times because obviously that's a huge investment for seven. Is it still a good proposition with the ongoing COVID
0: situation? I think seven's more confident than the rest of the market is. I mean... There's been real question marks raised, and rightly so, given the issues that we've had here with the tennis particularly. And Seven's been quite transparent in that they said that the International Olympics Committee will be looking at how the Australian Open's run, how things go to kind of see if they can emulate what's worked and avoid what hasn't. But if you think of that on a on a small scale here in a country where COVID-19 has been largely under control versus elsewhere, it's very hard to imagine logistically the challenges that an event like the Olympics would throw up. James Warburton, Kurt Burnett, the Chief Revenue Officer, both very confident that everything they're hearing is pointing to it still going ahead. Of course, you know, seven also gets 50 million back if it doesn't. So I'm not too sure they'll be overly upset either way, but it would be a big deal in terms of, you know, how much they've They've pinned on having it as part of their programming slate for the middle of this year.
1: And um, Steve, just on that, do you see that Seven is still the dominant player in sport in Australian media with its current lineup?
2: Um, it's certainly, uh, yeah, I think it's still dominant, but but it's not as dominant as it was. But then they're implementing a different strategy. I mean. Uh, losing the tennis and picking up the cricket and there's been so much written about picking up cricket and what it's meant but but a couple of extra points uh, on this um, both the cricket rating te- television viewer rating results and the Australian open current rating results would put some caution into both advertisers and uh, the Olympics as to how COVID and perhaps the lack of major uh, attendance, live attendance at sports, uh, seems to be having an effect on how popular and prominent the sport is. You know, we're starting to get um, a cachet of evidence that says that without live audiences, um, viewership drops for whatever reason, maybe because the same excitement level isn't there Maybe because we, we don't have as many water cooler conversations about it, I'm, I'm not sure what's happening. But the evidence is, is 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 mounting that even if the Olympics go ahead, there are there's going to be increasing advertiser caution on what they're getting for their money.
1: That's a new, really interesting point, there, Steve, about the lack of water cooler conversations, and obviously a lot of organisations still have the uh, work from home or at least a hybrid system in place at the moment. So maybe as people start returning to offices and that banter returns, then we may see a slight uptick in that. Um, just on that, I had an interesting conversation with um, the Chief Digital Officer at uh, Seven at with Gerard Roberts. And he said that their strategy was to keep it free. And obviously we've seen nine launched Stan and Stan Sports and News Corp has Foxtel and K.O. Do you think that that's still the right strategy? Is, is Seven missing something here?
2: Um, I, I think that they're, again, looking at the market and looking at the way the market's operating and, and, and will make a, a, a stronger decision maybe half a year or a year from now. At the moment... It's, it's a bit like when we started, when the real digital progress started in publishing. Um, you know, News Corp here and globally took the attitude that they wanted eyeballs and they didn't care if they were giving content away, that they wouldn't have paywalls. And Fairfax had the opposite point of view, the opposite strategy, where they said, no, you know, things are going to go behind paywalls you know, all our premium content you're going to have to pay for. Where where we've ended up 20 years later or 15 years later or whatever it is, um, is that you could argue that both uh, strategies have been successful for each publisher. You know, we've now got news moving more towards um, getting paid for content, whether it's behind uh, paywalls or whether it's by bundling um, subscriptions, digital and um, newspaper. Um, And you've got Fairfax who have just nine publishing now, nine digital as it's called, um, you you know, continuing down the same track. And, of course, the revenue mix for um, nine digital compared to the revenue mix for news is quite different.
1: Um I might just actually get a quick input from Brittany because I know she speaks with media agencies quite a lot.
0: Look, I think that um it's it's a similar position to what Seven was in when it it delivered its upfront presentation towards the end of last year. Media buyers, you know, understood the difficulty that Seven was thrown into last year, particularly when it did come to live sports and the impact that that had on 7 and 9 versus 10, which obviously doesn't have that same sports offering. Look, holy moly so far has been a disappointment for buyers, I think. 7 has said that it's still on track to deliver what it said it would for advertisers, but in terms of ratings, you know, it, it launched very well and has dropped off since then and is now hovering in the 400,000s in terms of Metro viewers. That. That show, I think James Warburton said in an interview this week, you know, they perhaps didn't have the exact right strategy in place for it. Perhaps it should be a once a week show that's stretched out a little more rather than cramming multiple episodes in each week and maybe it would do better next time with that approach in place. But I think that, you know, buyers are keen to see mainly, first and foremost, if the Olympics goes ahead, yes or no, and then depending on that, how the other how the other networks respond to that and what programming they run over the middle of the year if it does go ahead, and if not, you know, what, going to, what seven is going to throw up instead and how that's going to play out in terms of, you know, the yearly TV ratings and TV share.
2: And, and to add to what Brittany's just said, uh, remember that when the programming uh, slate for quarter one was laid down by all networks, Australian Open was January going into February. Um, you know, Seven had to make a decision whether they were going to stick with the format that they were originally going to put up against the Australian Open or abandon it. And, you know, um, they chose to leave the format um, uh, as it was. Uh, Nine, as you know, put in a couple of specials, Married at First Sight specials. And they pulled forward travel guides they did it they they cobbled together some programming that wasn't what seven originally thought they were going to be up against and strategically uh, tennis is female biased and older. so what seven were programming was younger audience excitement, color action, and of course. Suddenly they weren't against that and whilst they launched very well, as, as Britt said, um, they haven't been able to sustain it. And um, uh, But in part, I'm saying it's possibly some of uh, the deterioration of audiences, possibly because they're not against what they expected to be at the time. The audiences aren't deteriorating at the same rate this week as they were last week um, and you know, uh, that's a bit of a sign that, you know, if, if they were uh, programming against a uh, female-biased, older-biased uh, program every night, they might have done a little bit better.
1: Steve, I'll just pick your brain on one thing. The uh, the revenue that Seven reported, and uh, I think it was a net profit of $116.4 We also learned during the financial results that they were recipients of over $30 million in JobKeeper. We've seen a number of organisations now say that they're going to return that money to the government because they weren't hit as badly by COVID as they expected and they actually did end up having quite significant profits uh, throughout the year. Is that something you think is should be of concern to Seven?
2: Look, um, we saw the best display of this, you know, with Nick Scarley, where... Nick Scaliem, Anthony Scali, said, "Well, we're not. We're not. It's a matter for the board, but but we don't think we're going to hand it back." And then there was all this furor in the marketplace, and you know they obviously some of their major shareholders or whatever. I don't know what went on, but suddenly they did a, a, a 180 degree turn and said, "No, we will give it back." Uh, every situation is different. Um, you know, uh, the the ones that have given it back are, are people that generally have increased turnover and, as a consequence, increased profit. Um, the media sector is not one of those. You can, you can look at play of Red Ink, um, you know, downturns in revenues. And so I think there's a different scenario that has to be thought through. I mean, if, if Seven had taken market share from its competitors and increased its revenue and a half, maybe there would be a case, but that's not the case.
1: Up next, we're going to look at the growth of Taboola and Outbrain as native advertising increases. Native advertising giants, Taboola and Outbrain, have secured deals with Nine, News Corp, Seven West Media, ACM and Val Morgan most recently. Taboola recently also secured approximately $285 million in funding from institutional investors and is set to be listed, listed at an implied $2.6 billion valuation. It's said that it plans to invest more than $100 million of that into R&D such as AI, e-commerce, TV, and device manufacturers. Meanwhile, Outbrain says it's on a massive growth trajectory as well, with native advertising budgets in 2020 surging. Steve, can I ask you first off, are these, are these platforms being fully utilised as yet? And secondly, what do you see as their main advantage to the marketplace?
2: The, the, the way we see it, and I'm not the digital expert here, we've got a digital expert who could uh, speak much more eloquently and in depth on this subject, but uh, having said that, um, One of the things that's happened, particularly in this last year with digital and digital retailing or online uh, buying, is that um, advertisers are are now seeing that you can have a more direct pathway to consumers. And um, more advertisers, a greater depth of advertisers, are seeing that this is possible, that they don't necessarily have to be in bricks and mortar, though some of the bricks and mortar people. Have just added sales by having really good e commerce enabled sites on their, on their traditional company site. Um, w- where Taboola and, uh, and, it's, in, and its like uh, really work in the space is by uh, engineering extra performance, by uh, engaging with consumers in the digital uh, sphere. And being therefore more measurable and more accountable for what they 're doing, and because they 're good at what they do and they 're fast and flexible they c- they can change things up and down quite quickly and this is of course in a in a crowded market uh, that 's digital savvy this is of course very important so they 're gaining a wider Appreciation from advertisers because more advertisers are now starting to sell direct to consumer um, and they're enabling uh, uh, you know consumers uh, to respond to advertisers that might want to sell online.
1: So have you noticed an increase in terms of your your own clients and and their strategies in terms of utilization of these? N-
2: native advertising um, w- which we would put this under these under. Uh, native advertising has been increasing in interest, uh, and I say again partly because it's a bit more accountable than other forms of of advertising or promotion. Um, you know, because it is in the digital sphere, and you can see the clicks, and you can see the the depth of uh, investigation by consumers, and you you can take the consumer off to your site quite directly or serve them up some extra information at at, at, at their use of their mouse.
1: And do you see them as an alternative to, say, social media outlets in terms of what they provide in terms of data and and also uh, audience?
2: Absolutely. They're they're a real alternative, and um, that's in part why uh, they're becoming increasingly active and increasingly appealing to advertisers.
1: And in terms of their agreements with the various publishers, do you see that also continuing? Is that something that you know is in best interest for both those native advertisers and the media outlet?
2: Olivia, I'm not an expert in this area, but one imagines that if the the revenue flow to the uh, publishers is greater after the deals that they've done, um, then everyone's happy. Everyone goes home happy because, of course for them to be doing this native advertising um, under the, these publishing giants, um, there has to be a quid in it for them, but there has to be a quid in it for the uh, originating publisher. Um, one can imagine that uh, from the publisher's point of view, this is another, um, you know, another offering and a good offering for advertisers that want to sell direct to the public or want to, engage directly with the public and there's an increasing number of that.
1: That's all for this week but before we go a reminder that Mumbrella Comscon awards are back for 2021 to recognise and celebrate the best people, teams, campaigns and businesses that are shaking up the Australia New Zealand PR and communications industry the most. From PR leader of the year to best COVID-19 response there are 25 categories in total Now is your time to take a moment to reflect on your accomplishments and tell us your success stories from the past 12 months. You can visit our website for more details. Once again, thank you very much, Steve, for joining us today.
2: Thank you, Olivia.
1: And thank you for listening.